This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We took a brief hiatus as we had some guest uh, preachers, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today. And today, in, for, in chapter 3, what we're going to be talking about is our work, our occupations, those things that kind of fill up our days. And I think that uh, we have this looming fear about our work. Uh, and it's not so much that we'll necessarily make an error. Uh, it's that it will ultimately be meaningless. I recently saw a meme on the internet, uh, and it was a picture of a lifeguard, and it had something that goes like this. If you think your work is meaningless, remember that there's a lifeguard at the swimming events of the Olympics. Seems like an unlikely place to need a lifeguard. And we understand that there's meaning in that work. Uh, there's probably uh, things that that lifeguard needs to know about the building and what to do in the event. Um, of an emergency, uh, but actually saving people uh, is probably relatively unlikely. Is their work meaningless? But the idea of meaninglessness in work is not just uh, in memes on the internet, um, but it's also in the likes of Carl Jung, Viktor Frankl, these kind of um, philosophical thinkers commenting on how the central neuroses of our time is an emptiness and a meaninglessness that pervades every corner of our lives. Now, one place that we might see this poetically played out in Scripture might be the, in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read it. Um, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, everything's meaningless. But today we're going to see this theme addressed in 1 Corinthians. We're going to see what it means to have meaningful work and what it takes as Christians as we look at our work for what defines meaning. And we're going to see three things. Uh, Christians find meaning in their work because they have a different goal, they use different materials, and they work for a different purpose. So these will be our three points today, um, and if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works, work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." This ends the reading of God's word. And although our works may fade, God's work and his word will last forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Well, 
Last night, my wife and I uh, just started season two of Ted Lasso. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen uh, Ted, Ted Lasso, uh, but it's a story that follows an American football coach who travels to the UK to coach a struggling soccer team. Now, Ted is supposed to be from Kansas, so uh, immediately, like, that endeared him to me. Because uh, as many of you know, my home state is Kansas, and it's just like, anytime Kansas is mentioned, you know, there's no place like home, I guess. I don't know. No? Wow, man, that was audible out there. Listen, I know where I'm from. We're pretty humble people, all right? The flyover state's for a reason. It's just like, it's flat, easy, straight driving. So although Ted Lasso draws hard on stereotypes of both rural America and the urban UK uh, and deals with some moderately adult themes, it has some incredible character development. Like any good story has to have incredible character development. And one way that you're going to see that is what the various characters' goals are. So again, like any good story, characters develop and you kind of see what they're about. And sometimes they surprise you. You think you have them figured out and then they do something and you're like, oh, I got to like bring that into my little matrix of who this person is. And sometimes they act exactly according the way that you think they're going to. Ted Lasso might have uh, three, three groups that we could look at. Um, the soccer players themselves have a particular goal. And usually their goal is individual glory. They want to build up their name. Like they want to be the best out there. So they're, you know, they're the, the, the top of their careers, um, the top uh, physical shape. And they're, they're kind of arrogant. They feel it. They want to win. They, they're like, I'm the best on this team. But the owner of the team also has a goal. You see, the owner of the team uh, kind of inherited it from a divorce. That's not uh, the words that you used, right? But uh, her goal is actually to ruin the team to spite her ex-husband. She cares nothing about the team, but she knows that her ex-husband cares greatly. That's the owner's goal. And obviously, Ted Lasso's goal uh, or, uh, is healthy team dynamics. That's his goal. He wants to see his team be the best that they can be he wants to involve the owner in that as well. Now, the question is going to be over the course of, of the TV show and any good story is what's going to happen with these various goals? It doesn't seem like they can all fit together. Some are probably going to have to change. Uh, some are going to need to dovetail together and maybe broaden the scope. Some are going to be in conflict and maybe never resolved. Will the players be able to seek their own glory over team cohesion? Will the owner succeed in ruining her ex's beloved team? Or will Ted's vision of a unified team ultimately be lived out? Paul's going to describe a similar thing about our goals. He's going to look at the meaning of our work. If, we, if, if the meaning of our work is a goal, Paul's going to look at that and he says, well, if you're going to figure out what meaning looks like, he's going to use the imagery of a building. It's like, if, if meaning is a building... You need to look at the foundation because the foundation is going to determine where that building is going to go. The foundation of their character, maybe, for the players, the owner, and Ted Lasso is going to determine why they act the way that they do. You've got to look at the foundation. It'll determine how tall the building will be, its dimensions. It will determine its permanence and its value. Is the foundation meant to last forever? Is it meant to be temporary so as we think about the meaning of our work, it'd be helpful to look at what the foundation of that meaning is. What gives meaning to our work? And again, we might acknowledge that there are various stakeholders. 
You see, the world is kind of telling us that there's one way to define meaning. Maybe it's being true to yourself, being the best you, creatively curating a social media following, shrewdly negotiating market volatility, or maybe correctly navigating workplace politics for that next promotion. But not only does the world have a particular way that it's trying to form us, we also have our own desires that flow out of us as far as what determines meaning. Is it making sure that your children have all of the best opportunities at all possible costs? Is it having that financial stability that you've been lacking most of your life? Is it having the husband, wife, or family that will finally cure that loneliness? Is that where meaning is found? In addressing meaninglessness, Paul says you have to start with the foundation. And Paul describes himself as a master builder. He's not the one who laid the foundation. If you look in verses 10 and 11, he says that the foundation's already been laid. The land was surveyed. The plans were drawn up. And Paul is just a chief engineer. He's just holding the plans and going, is this going according to plan? Are you building off the foundation here? That's not going to work. The building's going to crumble later. Paul wants to make absolutely clear that the foundation was already there before he got there and that that foundation is Jesus Christ. In verse 11, if you look there, he'll say the foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> so to find meaning in your work, the foundation has to be Jesus Christ. You could take it maybe a, a few different ways, but I think at most the broad level, if we just kind of zoom out, the first step has to be that you don't get to build your foundation. You don't get to determine what is meaningful and what isn't. And the world doesn't either. Jesus is the foundation, and he's determined what will be meaningful. Everyone must yield, in some sense, to the story of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, ultimately, we know that we'll taste that little bit of meaninglessness. So if you're looking for meaning or fulfillment from your job, your family, or your hobbies, you're not building on the foundation that's already there. You're trying to build your own. You're trying to say, eventually, if I work hard enough, I'm going to find this thing that's going to be, I'm, I'm going to achieve that meaning. I'm going to know when I finally tasted it. Finally, I will have arrived. And if, again, if I can switch back from the building to Ted Lasso uh, about a story, you're not the main character in this story. And that's kind of hard to hear, right? That you're a side character? That the story's really about Jesus? I think on the face of it, we would hear that. And we would go, how does that actually make my life more meaningful? Aren't side characters kind of meaningless? But not in Jesus' story. Far from relegating meaning, Jesus goes to those people that are the most side characters as possible. When you flip through the Gospels and you read Jesus' story, you see him going to the least important, the people who don't have meaning, and giving them meaning. The foundation of meaningful work 
has to first and foremost come from the fact that you can't define your own meaning-making. Jesus has to define it for you. Now, I do want to take a moment and recognize that Paul, in this letter, is addressing divisions inside of the church. And so maybe we might be thinking, you know what, the way that I work in the church, this applies to, but is Paul really talking about, like, my nine-to-five or, like, whatever I do with the rest of my day? And I'll answer it this way. Um, We have this distinction between our nine-to-fives and what we consider as holy or maybe what God would really care about that Paul doesn't quite share. And actually, we have something, though, that does kind of meet in the middle, and that's the way that we act in our families. Because we understand that the way that we act in our families, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, and how we treat people, and maybe even how we treat people in our workplace, has some eternal significance. But the work itself, we kind of diminish as if it's meaningless, but not so with our families. We kind of understand that there's a a way that we live in our families, there's a character that's established that is important. It's God-honoring, it's meaningful. And Paul actually consistently talks about people's work that way too. And here's why. It's because Jesus didn't come to just save our souls. Jesus didn't come just to save um, intangible things. When Adam and Eve fell and they sinned against God, all of creation fell with them. And the Bible will say that Jesus came to redeem humanity, yes, and save them. And through that, and by them, and by his power, to restore all of creation. To restore humanity to what they were created to be. Adam was to tend to the garden, make it more beautiful. He can't create out of nothing, but he can work with the resources that God gave him. That's what Jesus came to do. Paul understands that God uses tax collectors. He understands that God uses Roman soldiers. He understands that God uses the wealthy and God uses the poor. It isn't about how they, just how they act in church. Of course, it isn't less than that, but it's how they act at work and in their families because God's sense of meaning, Jesus' sense of meaning transcends our divisions between what is holy and not holy or sacred and secular, as some people like to say. He actually says, all of it is mine. The first step in finding meaning of your work is giving up building your own foundation. Now, um, figuring out those areas where we are trying to build our own foundation is actually exceptionally difficult <laughs> uh, because we like to deceive ourselves. Um, we like to think like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm building on top of Christ's foundation, you know? Um, and that's where it's really helpful. This is just a, a practical, like, little application point is to have Christian brothers and sisters around you that are involved in your life enough to be able to know those habitual patterns that you have of building your own foundation and getting off the track. We all do it. And it's helpful to have people outside of yourself go, are you sure about that? Are you sure that that's a meaning that Jesus is looking after as well? It's why we can look at our work 
and actually call it vocation. Now, that word like vocation comes from a Latin word that ultimately meant calling. It meant that we were called to do something, that God called to us and gave us work to do, and that that work is good. But if you work according to the sense of your own call or to the call of the world or to social media, you will consistently find meaninglessness. There is one calling that provides everlasting meaning. So we see that in finding meaning in our work, the foundation is crucially important. But Paul is also going to say that the materials that we use are also important. You see, there's a lot of ways to achieve a goal, a lot of means to an end, you might say. Um, Maybe we have determined the right end. We kind of know what the foundation looks like. But now the question is, what are we going to build with it? Like, how are we going to do our work? A couple weeks ago, uh, a toilet handle broke on, on one of our toilets in our house. Um, I went to the hardware store to replace it, uh, and they didn't have the right one. Like, there, there's different designs, you know, it fits in different places of the toilet or whatever to, like, lift up the little chain and the flap. You guys know what I'm talking about? So I got the mirror one. And what that means is you have to lift up on the handle instead of push down. Uh, and it means that the little, like, rod inside hits the uh, tank cover. Uh, and it's a small thing, but I was like, you know what? Job done. Scratch that off the uh, honeydew list, right? Um, the toilet is now fixed. That's a win. However, over time, using uh, shoddy building materials, the way that it pulls on the chain actually means that like, the little flap below uh, doesn't quite end up sitting right. And so now it's leaking a little bit of water and kind of has to refill the tank every once in a while. My uh, willingness to reach the end at all costs um, is now possibly going to cost me more labor down the road. And I'm sure that we all have some experiences of this in some way. And so the question is, what kind of building materials are we going to use? And Paul, in verses 12 through 15, is going to describe what these materials are like. You see, it isn't simply that the building needs to get built at all costs. We don't need to just build on the foundation with whatever we have lying around. The building needs to be built the right way. You see, wood, hay, and straw won't survive the fire because wood, hay, and straw are combustible. So when the fire comes along and if you're making bricks out of that stuff, it's just going to like, boom, it's gone. And the building's going to fall over. That's why it says the fire will reveal it. But if you use gold, silver, and precious stones, those are actually refined by fire. It's how you actually take the impurities out of it. But gold, silver, and precious stones are difficult and costly to acquire. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we could apply this to our work. But what I'm going to ask us to do is actually fast forward a little bit to verses 16 and 17. And you see that Paul's continuing with this idea of building a building, right? But then in verse 16, he kind of changes it. Do you not know that you are God's temple? He starts with this idea that the foundation is Jesus Christ and we're building upon it with our work, right? And so we need to use quality things. But in verse 16, he can change it and say, actually, you're going to be the quality thing that builds the building. So the question might be asked, are we simply disposable means to God's end? Is God okay using us 
even though we're less than the highest quality materials? Does God just want his temple built the cheapest way it can be built? And the answer, of course, would be no. God doesn't do things the cheapest way possible, especially not for his temple, his dwelling place. God will use the best building materials, but as we've acknowledged, the best building materials are difficult and costly to acquire. You see, again, the Bible will describe us as wood, hay, and straw. We were by nature children of wrath, opposed to God. We by nature are not materials worth using. There are character flaws and things wrong with us being used as a dwelling place for God himself. And so we need to be transformed. And so maybe instead of saying that the best building materials are um, difficult and costly to acquire, we might say in relation to ourselves, the best building materials are difficult and costly to transform. In fact, it would cost God's Son himself to transition us from children of wrath into children of of the living God. But what does this mean for our work? Like, what, what does this mean about how we go about our work? I think one way we need to look at that is the transformation of our character. If the foundation has been determined meaningful and everlasting, now we also have to be made of people that are worthy to be built upon the foundation. Now, I want to acknowledge at the forefront that we cannot do this. You need Jesus to transform you. And yet, in the Christian life, this process of sanctification so the, is the big word that we use for it, uh, is that we actually deny writing our own story or building our own foundation and actually hold on to what Jesus says is true and that through that, our character is actually transformed. We actually become people that represent God's holy temple. You see, it's hard to address or even work with a coworker that you've had conflict with. But refining character like refining gold, it is costly and it is difficult. But it is worth it. It is hard to actually leave the job that might be a great fit financially, but maybe whose entire system is predatory. It's hard to think about customers that we would lose at the expense of changing some of our sourced materials because costs would go up. It's hard to imagine the customers that we would lose if we started treating our employees like people. It's hard to... It's, it's difficult and costly to make those decisions in your family that break generational patterns that you've inherited to live in light of the story that God tells. Just like determining what exactly uh, fits onto the foundation, we, we need some outside help. And so, you know, uh, Christian brothers and sisters is helpful in doing that. But maybe as a small example, I can give this. You know, I grew up in a household uh, that uses sarcasm liberally, uh, still to this day. Uh, genuine compliments were somewhat hard to come by. 
uh, and passive aggressiveness was the way that conflict was usually handled. Now, like a good human being, I learned what I was taught, and I am now giving it back. And although all of our families have those special things that make them unique, um, and I'm, I'm not by any way saying that like, my, my family was the epitome of, of unhealth in that sense, uh, but this is just factual for what it is, I now look at my life and I look at the foundation that Christ says should be laid and the kind of materials that I should use to do it. So not just that my family acts in a certain way, but that actually inside of it I behave in a certain way. Maybe one small step, the next right thing maybe that I can do to help modify that character and change generational patterns is actually by giving genuine compliments. My wife's not out here, but you could ask her. I'm not good at it. It is difficult and it is costly. So not only does the foundation have to be adhered to and, and respected, the materials used are also very important. But we still have this question about why. Why is the foundation this way? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense with other things that I'm being told. I think maybe, like, this part makes sense, but, like, but this? Why do I need so much transformation? Jesus' definition of meaning sometimes doesn't make sense. And the process of transforming our character is difficult and sometimes humiliating in the humbling sort of sense. And again, we're going to have to go back to those verses 16 and 17. Zoom out and see the picture. Because as we mentioned, verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So this building that we're all being pulled together into is designed to be a temple. Now, uh, I think that we tend to think of this individualistically. We read that word you, but if, if you've got a Bible translation with one of those footnotes, it'll probably have it in there in verse 16, that that word you is plural. The temple of God actually involves all of us. Now, I've already hinted that Paul kind of mixed the metaphor, right? First we were building on the foundation, then he says that you are part of the building. But what he's doing there is he's saying, we're actually going back, but into something better. You see, like I said, God used to dwell with mankind in the garden. God used to walk with him face to face. God used to be able to tell him exactly what was meaningful. He said, all this is yours just not this tree. But mankind rebelled. Mankind sinned. Mankind killed God's very own son. And yet God continues to pursue us because he longs to dwell with us. The purpose of the building is to take us from Genesis to Revelation and have God dwell with us again. 
the reason that the foundation looks a certain way, the reason that our characters need to be transformed is so that God in his fullness will dwell with us. That we might be restored to our original purpose. Now, this has some important applications for the Corinthians and for us. And the first has to do, uh, I mean, both actually, uh, the things that I'm going to be talking about have to do with uh, the plural singular transition, right? Like, we think that it's singular. So the first, like, we tend to think that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. People hear people say that all the time. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not quite inappropriate uh, to use that language, but every time Paul uses that language, he's actually saying your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you plural. All of us make up the body of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, for Paul, in his context in the Corinthians, it meant that they were fighting and tearing one another down. It meant that there were different factions coming up and saying, no, you're doing this wrong. And I think that this can actually be um, applied uh, to us almost directly. How do we treat Christians? Let me just leave that there. Let's just think about how we treat Christians. And it's often not great. Now, I want to understand that Christians have their likes and preferences. Um, Christians have uh, doctrinal differences that may necessitate that we all don't worship in the same building all the time. But there is a factual matter that all those who Jesus is refining make up his temple. And the work that we consider everlasting needs to be done with all of his people. I'm not saying that we're always best friends all the time, but I am saying that there is a level of respect that comes for God's temple. Because, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. A second area we might highlight is that we as individual members represent the whole. To that person in our workplace, to that family member, you represent the rest of Christianity. Now that's a really weighty thing. It's a really humbling thing. But actually, I would say that it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect because showing your weakness and admitting it and going back to your dependence upon Jesus actually makes the building all the more beautiful. There will still be those who attack it from the outside, but God will defend his temple. When we represent Christianity to another, it means that we have the guts to say when we've represented it poorly. To acknowledge that I acted out of a poor character there. And lastly, and I've already kind of hinted at it, ancient temples were the place where gods were to be found. And gods were expected to defend their temples. Um, there would be judgment upon those that would desecrate a temple. So in some sense, that can give us confidence in the face of persecution, um, that God will uh, defend his temple. Um, for those wrongs done against Christianity, there will be a defense. But also there should be, in the context of Corinthians 2, that humbling of, man, I hope I treat my brothers and sisters well. And I hope that I represent the temple well. 
the foundation is important. The materials are important, and the purpose that we're going towards is important. A temple of the living God. Now, if you'll remember at the beginning of this book in 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed the Corinthians as saints. If you were to just flip back, if you've got a Bible, um, you'd see that in the first couple paragraphs, he calls them saints. If you know anything about the rest of 1 Corinthians, you know that they aren't exactly what we would define as saints. Um, There's a lot of things going on in Corinth that are like, wow, uh, that's happening there. Okay, great. And we'll get there as we work our way through it. But part of the reason that Paul could call them this is because he calls them sanctified in Christ Jesus. Again, this is early in chapter 1. And sanctified just means set apart for a holy purpose. So maybe another way that I can stretch this analogy is this. Paul had a certain set of glasses on, and with a certain set of glasses, he saw all these um, disparate bricks to a building laying around. And most of them were of really low quality, burned up in a second. Worthless, should probably be discarded, dead already. Not useful for anything good and not built on any particular foundation. But when he used his Jesus set of glasses he saw something different. Bricks of the highest quality knit together on an everlasting foundation and for a glorious purpose of having God himself reside in them. The reason that Paul could see these people, even though they were not that already, as this temple is because Paul had begun to experience this transformation in his own life. When he met Jesus, Jesus started transforming him and chipping away at the brick, refining it, placing it in a particular place in the foundation and giving it a holy purpose, a sanctified purpose. If you want to find meaning in your work, You're going to have to experience a transformation that only Jesus himself can provide because Jesus establishes what the boundaries are for meaning-making of what's ultimately important and what that looks like in your work. Jesus is the only one that can chip away at those dark recesses of your heart and transform them into something that's as precious as gold. And Jesus is the only one that knows what the finished temple looks like and is able to indwell it with the fullness of his presence And so give us glorious purpose. Scripture says that God delights to make us side characters in Jesus' story. And although Jesus accomplished it all, that Jesus is really the one building the temple, that he's the foundation, but he's also the one changing the bricks and putting it all together and giving its purpose, he's looked at this one-minute part of a play, one-minute part of Ted Lasso, that is your life. And he says, this is valuable to me. I have a place for you. It's right here with these people. And you have a glorious purpose. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, It really is quite shocking um, that you would want to dwell in us. 
when we look at our own lives, we understand that we are not a place where a holy God can dwell. We need something greater. But Father, you delight to live with us, even in a foretaste here and now. You have restored our relationship and restored our purpose. You've brought us to be a people, a different kind of people, with a different kind of character. And you have laid a foundation that is everlasting and meaningful. Jesus, interrupt our lives. Stop us from building our own foundations. Chip away at our character and refine us into gold, silver, and precious stones. And allow us to see our glorious purpose with your people in light of your story. Give us the meaning that only you can give. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.